Well, this morning, we're starting a new series called Straight Up the Book of James, because James tells things very clearly. Uh, He's truthful, honest, uh, unadulterated in how he speaks and writes, and so he tells it straight up how he feels and what we need to know, and so that's what we're going to do. We're going to dig in to the Word in the Book of James, and it's going to be a little different. We're not going like a three-point thing. We're just going to walk through and see what does God have for us in the midst of this Book of James. Um, And so before we get to the main passage for today, I want to dig into the backstory of James a little bit. Who is this guy, right? Anybody named Jim or James or have a family member? It's a super common name. My my, uh, father-in-law's name is James or Jim, and my brother-in-law's middle name is that. And so who's James? Who's this guy? What, is he, what did he do? Why, is, why does he have a book in the Bible? Um, why should we care about what he thinks, right? Well, I want to get to know who he is so we can connect more with what he has to say, because I think the Lord has some amazing stuff for us through what he revealed to James to be written in this book, written to believers. So check this out. James was the brother of Jesus. Yes, <laughs> Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Talk about living in sibling shadow, right? <laughs> this guy's brother is Jesus, of all things. Now, technically, he was Jesus' half-brother because, you know, Mary was his mom, but his father is God, the Holy Spirit, right? And, you know, James, that was Jesus. James doesn't have the Holy Spirit as his, uh, I don't know, you guys figure it out, right? <laughs> there's a, there's, they're kind of half-siblings a little bit. They have the same mom. But they're related, right? So any of you out there who have step-parents or step-kids, you got something in common with Jesus' family, right? There's a, there's a dynamic there that's similar. I think most of us, if we look at our, our lives, could share some pretty crazy stories about siblings or even if, you don't, if you're an only child, friendships or different things where you had to relate to other people growing up and that, how hard that can be as a kid or as a, as a brother or as a sister, as, as, as a child of someone's, right? Um, I have a fun story I can share with you guys. When I was, I'm, it's funny what you remember when you're little. Any of you guys have some like pretty vivid memories when you're young and you're like, how do I even still remember that? How do I still remember what I was feeling and thinking and all this? When I was five and my, so I have a younger sister who's two years younger than me. She was three. We had a pretty intense moment in sibling rivalry there. I remember um, she was playing with her toys in her room and being the amazing big brother I was, I wanted to go annoy her, right? I wanted to go bother her. I wanted to kind of get under her skin a little bit. And so I went in there and she was annoyed at me and told me to get out or I'm telling mom. And so I stepped out of her room, but I stayed in the hallway just across the threshold and still annoyed her. And she kept saying, get out of here. And I said, I'm not in here. And I'd put my arms in, you know, and she'd get really annoyed. Well, she, again, being three years old, it's crazy how in, in just intuitive a child can be. My sister had this little rainbow bright table. You know, a little, little preschooler sized table had the rainbow bright like characters and pattern on the top. And it was like plastic or wood or something. And then it had these four just metal legs that bolted in and stuff. And so she's got this table, and I'm just annoying her like crazy. And she, I don't know where she got the idea, and how as a three-year-old she even thought of this. One of the table legs was loose and would always fall off. She went over to her rainbow bright table as a three-year-old with her five-year-old annoying brother, pulled the leg out, and came over and just smacked me across the face. And still to this day, if you're talking up close, I believe you can still see the little scar right on the edge of my nose where she had hit me because she was so bothered by me. And I just remember 
being so upset that my parents didn't ground her or get her more in trouble, right? They helped me and consoled me, and they told her that was wrong. But being a three-year-old, they're probably thinking, what are we going to do? I mean, she's still learning concepts. Um, I remember thinking, she, she should be in so much trouble. I was so mad. But that was, you know, one of our just crazy sibling stories. We, we, when you have family and you're young, you're learning how to develop life skills. And for us, I mean, that was, that was one of the earlier memory moments that I have of our sibling rivalry, rivalry over the years and stuff. But man, can you, can you imagine Jesus being your older brother? <laughs> the things that you must have felt, the experiences that you must have had growing up. I mean, think about it. You, you're, you're, you're like James and you come to mom. Hey, guess what? I just memorized my Sunday school verse from the book of Genesis. You want to hear it? And mom's like, yeah, that's nice. Well, Jesus memorized the whole thing. That whole verse? No, the whole Bible. Like, he knows it all already, right? I mean, how are you supposed to live up to that? Or can you imagine James yelling at Jesus, I hate you. And Jesus is like, well, I love you. Unconditionally, I would die for you. You know, like, I just want to be mad at you. Stop it. <laughs> you, can't, you can't win in those moments, right? James probably wonders why Jesus never gets grounded because he's still... He's still realizing that Jesus is perfect and sinless and all that. And I would imagine James probably had a bracelet that said WWMBD, right? What would my brother do? <laughs> Think of that, the shadow that you'd be living in if you were James and, as a child, right? Now, that, that stuff's fun to imagine. It's pretty cool to think about what would it be like as a child and Jesus' family? And I still wonder about that. What was Jesus like as a kid? I know the moments we see him, he's off at the temple and he's already like teaching adults and things. He's, he's amazing, but those other fun things are cool to imagine. But I wonder, what else does the Bible say about this relationship between James and Jesus? What is this dynamic that elevates the, perp- the reason why we might want to listen to what James has to say? What do we gain from this? What does that look like? Well, in John, the, the Gospel of John, chapter 7, it says that Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. Now, that's a pretty big statement there, and I think it doesn't say James's name specifically, but he's one of his brothers. So he's lumped into this. And so I want you to connect this to the fact that James ends up writing a book of the Bible, but in his history, at one point, before Jesus was crucified and died and rose and ascended and all that, James didn't really believe in Jesus' deity. He didn't, he didn't really understand the fullness of who his brother was and came to be and what he was going to do. Now, he was still kind of following him and, and in the mix here, but I think there was a lot that was lost on him and he didn't quite understand. And the, that John chapter 7 literally says his brothers didn't believe in him. Matthew chapter 12 talks about how Jesus ignored his family because he's, he's in this place with these people and his, and his mom and brothers come looking for him and he's like, well, who is my mother and my brothers? Like, they're not any different than the rest of the people. And it, how that must have felt as his family to feel like, oh, but we're family. I was looking for you. I needed you. You didn't really even address me. You just kind of said, hey, I'm here. I'm working. I'm busy. I can't talk to you right now. To feel a little bit left out by Jesus in that moment. And then on the cross, you know, Mary's, you know, obviously probably really sad. Jesus is at his, on his deathbed here in this moment. And Jesus looks at her and t- says, behold your son, and points at John. Not James. Points at the apostle John because she's weeping over him in this moment and he's wanting her to connect over here. How would you feel if you were James? Of like, hey, 
what about me? My chopped liver? Like, what's going on here? Like, I'm here, right? He's in this place of, it's, of still living in the shadow and walking through the struggles of what it looked like to navigate this relationship with your brother being Jesus Christ. But then after Jesus died and was buried and then resurrected, he ascends to heaven, sends the Holy Spirit, something changes for James in that process. Something changes where he finally encounters the Lord, the Lordship of Jesus in a new way that radically delivers him from his old way of thinking, from his old life. Acts chapter 1 talks about how James was in the upper room when the Holy Spirit came and was poured out upon the believers. And James then later on becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem after Peter and John leave. Now that makes James the main pastor and apostle for the entire church of Jerusalem in Israel and the surrounding area. Like he's, he's the top dog guy in charge and is now responsible for the church. That's, that's where James got to after all of this. After, after Jesus came to do and did what he came to do, James is now in this place of really understanding who his brother is, right? And so the interesting thing is after James then becomes the head of the whole church, he's bearing the responsibility of that leadership and then persecution hits and it gets really ugly. James is responsible for shepherding the people that his brother came to die for. And again, that could be hard if you continually didn't believe. Thankfully, James had this kind of life change, this heart change where because he now understood the fullness of who Jesus is, he now knew how to lead. He now knew how to walk people through that. And if you think about what he had to lead through, it was pretty crazy. The government was cracking down on Christianity and killing believers. And James is the head of the Christian church, right? You're in charge, and the government is against everything you're doing and is killing people for what you are leading. You're, you're having to lead through that. In the church, there are false prophets Confusing people by using the name of God for false things, false teachings. There are religious battles with, with, the, with the, the Jewish um, people over things like circumcision, and you're not really saved if you don't do this or that, and they, they were still living in the legalism, and it was, it was trying to hook into people, and it was keeping them from understanding the grace and fullness of what Jesus had done. There were power-hungry hungry people vying for leadership and creating division in the church, and then there were believers Walking away from the faith and going back to just the old ways of living. I imagine it's probably easier than facing all they had to face in that season. The persecution, the hardship, the division, the pain, the struggle of it all. And it's in the midst of this turmoil that James writes to the church. That he writes this book that we now get to read in, in our New Testament of the Bible. Right? So let's dive into what God inspired him to write over all the believers. I, wanted to, I think that backstory is important so you know who James is and the season in which he's writing because to understand that he didn't believe and, and is now in charge because he had this deliverance of, of his old ways and then this, what the world is facing, what he's leading through, it brings a weightiness to what he's sharing that I think really helps us understand the fullness of it. So let's jump in to James chapter 1. Verse 1, and we're just going to walk through part of this chapter today, verse by verse. I just want to talk through it here with you this morning. It says, this letter is from James. All right, great. Now we know what we're reading, right? A slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. Greetings. Now, I just want to pause after verse 1. Did you hear what he's writing there? The same brother who at one point didn't believe in Jesus is now declaring 
that he's a willing slave to him. Like, hey, I'm going to give up of myself completely and be yours, Lord. Like, it doesn't matter that I watched you grow up and I didn't get it and we were brothers and we, you know, James probably had whatever feelings he had. He's like, I'm all in. I get it. I know who you are now. I'm, I love you and I'm following you and I am leading for you and I'm all in. That, that, that statement of saying I'm a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, he's calling his brother Lord now. He gets it. He understands who Jesus is and he's all in. James's experience with Jesus was so real that he gave up everything to follow him. And I think, I think that makes you want to listen a little bit more to what this guy has to say, doesn't it? That he had that radical of a life change over it. That at one point he didn't believe and now he's all in. Let's continue, verses two through four. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, anybody know what that feels like? (laughs) Troubles coming your way. Consider it an opportunity for great joy. Woo, all right. (laughs) It's not always that easy, is it? For you know when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. James here, he's reassuring people that he knows the difficulties they're going through. It's like, hey, as the one that God has chosen to kind of lead the church right now, I just want you to know that I know what you're going through. I see it. I feel you. This is hard. I love that he acknowledges that. Because it doesn't matter how long you've been saved or what title of a church job you might have. I, I don't, you guys don't have to call me Pastor Andy, by the way. You just call me Andy, right? That, that's, that's the, those title things don't matter as much as it does who God is in the middle. And he's just saying, look, we are God's people, and you're going through it, and I understand. Let's come together and figure out how we go after God in this together. And he's honest enough to admit that these trials can test our faith. Saying, look. If you're facing something and it's challenging in a way where you're wondering, God, where are you and what are you doing and why is this happening? And, and you're even questioning whether or not it's even worth it. You're a normal human being. <laughs> God knows that stuff comes your way. James is acknowledging this. God is using James to show believers, look, it's understandable to face these things and have those feelings, Right? But then he reminds him that God can turn these troubles into something good. If you're willing to hang on, he encourages them to endure in order to see what God has that's better for them on the other side. Through it all, knowing that everything that's happening can build up something within them and in their life that can be good and godly. It just takes a lot of, a lot of ability to just hold fast to the Lord, to not give up along the way, right? Let's continue verse 5. Here it says, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God. I love how Paul here too just just highlights the character of our Lord. Just ask our generous God. He's just reminding believers, look, here's who our God is. Here's the one we serve. He says, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. I just want to pause there for a second because I wonder if there's someone in here who has not asked God for something because... They felt ashamed, like, I should know this. I feel foolish asking this. I feel dumb for asking this. It's my, I, it's my fault that I don't know this. I don't know how to do this, that I've fallen into this. He will not rebuke you for asking. But when you ask him, 
Be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver. For a person with divided loyalty is, unsettled as a, is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world. And they are unstable in everything that they do. Loyalty is divided. Now, I don't, this is not relating to what we were talking about earlier, that when your faith is tested and it's hard, and I acknowledge that, the undividedness isn't like the temptation of like, hey, what's going to happen to me? It's that my loyalty is divided means I'm giving in to the Lord and I'm giving in to the world and I'm kind of pulling on both sides here. God's saying, hey, if you want me, then have me. But I don't want you to come and ask me this. And then say, forget about it, God. I'm going to find it on my own in the next moment over here. He's saying, look, come to me. I've got everything that you need. I've got everything that, that, that might not be what you want. I felt like the Lord was putting that in my heart in our breakthrough worship and prayer night on Thursday. It was just like, God wants, us to, wants you to know, I've got everything that you need. Even if it's not what you want, it's more than enough for you. I'm more than enough for you. God wants you to know that, right? And so he's looking at he's, he's this division within people. And so I think when you think about that for ourselves, isn't it, I was reading this on my own, isn't it easy to get caught up trying to do everything on your own? Just that first part of that, just ask God. It sounds so simple, just ask God. But how often is it that that's the last thing that we do? Because, well, I'm going to ask Google. I'm going to ask all my friends on Facebook. Anybody have the answer to this? I'm going to ask other people or I'm just going to trial and error this thing until I figure it out, even though it's going to cost me a lot along the way because all that error can create a lot of pain. And I mean, sometimes we learn a lot through error and failure. But man, if you need wisdom, ask God. James reminds us of that simple yet powerful thing. We can ask God the Father ourselves directly. Jesus connected us to him in such a way where now we have access to our living God, our Father in heaven. And God does not think that we're weak or dumb for needing help. In fact, he really honors our humility. God loves it when we're humble enough to admit that I don't have it all together. I don't know everything. I don't know how to do everything. I'm not perfect. I don't have enough talent. I don't have enough strength. I don't have enough wisdom. So God, I need you. God loves it when we can come to that place because we've, we've no longer been relying on ourselves or that world. We've given ourselves fully to him, fully reliant upon him and who he is. But I think it will always be tempting when we're struggling, when we're facing these trials, to kind of go back to our old ways of thinking. Um, you know, to forget to ask God, to look to the ways we used to look to to find our answers in this world. James got to watch this wavering happen a lot uh, when he was younger because he hung out with Peter. <laughs> I think about Peter. He was the guy who was like, Jesus, tell me to come on the water. And sweet, I get to. And he walks out. And oh, wouldn't that have been cool if I just kept going, right? You know, he walks out and, and he's on the water with Jesus. And yet he turns his eyes to the waves and starts to rationalize what the world is showing him and falls in rather than, rather than staying fully in the moment with Jesus. And so there's a wavering there. And he knows that how Peter wavered when, when Jesus was being accused. And they, they see Peter and they say, hey, don't you know this guy? And he's like, this is just after he says, Jesus, I'm never going to reject you and turn away from you. And then he's like, I don't know who he is. You know, this wavering was in and through Peter, and Peter becomes one of the most amazing people of, of the church that we read about, right? 
But there was a wavering, and so James got to see that firsthand. He got to watch that. And I think that's, I think that's pretty revelatory for us as believers because these leaders of the church were experiencing these very things within themselves and asking God for help too. And so we get to experience God in much of the same way. But when, when we give into that wavering, when that wavering becomes a part of our life, and that happens, that's when the storms come and we get tossed about. And it feels like everything is all over the place. Now, I like order in my life. I don't care about having control as like a control freak type of control. I just like to have rhythm. I like to know that, that there's a little bit of order to my life. And this last year has felt a lot out of control because there's been so much we've been walking through in life and family and different things, right? Um, so there's a, there's a temptation to want to have things under control. But... When those storms come, if it's, you can face those things and still feel a calm and contentment in the Lord without having control for yourself. Versus I think if we waver and we rely on our own strength or the world, that's when you start to feel those, those feelings of burnout and overwhelming, the overwhelmingness of things. The, maybe, maybe even depression or anxiety or something, stress, the fears, the things that come against you. I would almost say... I, Take that before the Lord and say, God, is this a sign that, that I've been wavering in some kind of way like James is talking about? And I'm not saying it is, but I would just say it could be something that God's trying to pinpoint in your life. And, and, and I know he does that in my life. Hey, how do I look at what I'm going through and what's triggering that and saying, God, what are you up to in this? Where have I not been asking you? Where have I been relying on me still or on this world? And so those type of situations, it's no wonder we get frustrated with God because I think there's this part of us that thinks, well, I got saved. I know Jesus. I'm walking with the Lord. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying here and there. And so I shouldn't be facing all this stuff. I'm a Christian, right? And I think, I think our identifying of ourselves as Christians with Jesus leads us to this false assumption that we shouldn't have these trials. We shouldn't have these troubles. And so we get frustrated when God's not working. We expect him to work. And so then I think that we get divided and confused because we start relying on other things and we don't see God moving. But then what James is saying is if you're divided, then God's going to wait on you. God's, God's gets, God still loves you. He's still going to be working in your life. But he's really wanting to know, hey, will you just come to me? I've got so much for you, right? Will you let me? meet you where you're at. Will you come to me? Will you rely on me? God's waiting for us to choose him fully like James was talking about. Jump into verse 9, 10, and 11 here. As believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them. And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. They will fade away like a little flower in the field. The hot sun rises and the grass withers. The little flower droops and falls and its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all of their achievements. He's differentiating something here because I think, I think James isn't talking about, hey, it's better to be poor, better to be rich. He's not talking about a better than thing. He's talking about when someone doesn't have something and they find the Lord, there's probably a thankfulness of, of being without. Whereas anyone who's got a lot, it's going to be a lot more tempting to rely on what you've got, right? It's going to be a lot more tempting to feel like you've got things you need because this world portrays that, that message. Hey, if you just have this, right? Every commercial, uh, if you ever stop and think about when you're watching a commercial, 
what emotion are they playing to in my life? It's usually some sort of need or I can't live without this, right? There's this, there's this ploy to get me to feel like my life would be better if I had this, if I bought that, if I went on, got this experience, right? I mean, seeing like those cruise liner commercials, I'm like, yeah, that looks amazing. Of course they're going to make it look amazing. Until you're stuck on a boat and all the electricity goes out and, and pandemics hit, and then who knows what you're experiencing. But you know what I'm saying? Like the commercials make it sound so good. So I think when we read this part of the passage, I think what's cool to remember is we're all different in here. We all have different life experiences. And I love how the Bible, too, when you look at the parables, you talk, the, 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 the servants with the different levels of talent, the Lord just wants us to know that no matter what we've got and, and where we got it from, that we're humble enough to, to be sacrificial to the Lord and say, God, how would you have me lead my life and use this? He highlights the, the, the humble, God has humbled them in here, right? There's an opportunity for humility and there's an opportunity for honor in these things. So whether rich or poor, we're all in this together, inheriting the kingdom. We just gotta remember that we stay humble and not look down on one another. I think that's something in our society that, that happens, People create different social classes based on their wealth and they create different cliques and groups and and things. I think, honestly, wealth is just one symbolic thing. We could look at a variety of things. You could look at politics as a divisional thing between people that keeps people separated in their social networks. You could look at just what you do for a job or whether or not you even have a job. You could look at interests and things that you like and care about. And there's some natural things. Yeah, I want to hang out with people there. But I think... What can we do to stay humble before the Lord and honor everybody else in our life? To be able to look at every single one of God's sons and daughters and every single one of his children and love them like he does, right? We're all in this together. Every single one of you here, I don't know where you're at today. Man, God loves you immensely. God sees where you're at and he loves you incredibly. Like I, I, I wasn't, it's not even in my notes, but I was, just, I, I was sensing the same heart of the Lord Thursday night again, our prayer and worship, and I'm just sensing it again now. Like God knows every aspect of your life. He knows your name. He knows what you've walked through in this life. He knows what you have and what you don't have. He knows how you're feeling, what you're thinking. And he loves you, and he's for you, and he's with you, right? That's our God. That's how good he is. And I think that's one thing the Lord wants us to know is that's not only how he feels about us, that's how he feels about the person sitting next to you, across the room from you, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, right? The Lord loves his people and he's calling us to, to come together and do this together, to love him and to love others along the way. Verse 12 says that God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. He's bringing back to that hardship again. Patiently enduring. Well, patience is a fruit produced by the Holy Spirit. So we need God. We have to come back to that asking God because we can't be patient enough. I can try, but eventually my man-made patience is going to run out and I'm going to get irritable and I'm going to get stressed. And irritability is not loving if you read 1 Corinthians 13. And I get there sometimes, right? Like, and then that reminds me like, oh yeah, 
There's that trigger again. That's, that's a sign that I might be giving into something that's not of your word, like that irritability. God, I want to be loving, right? I want to get in that. So that patience means the only ability to stay enduring is if we have the Lord, if, if we're going to God and asking him, saying, Lord, fill me with your spirit. I want to live for you today. I want to see people like you see him today. All this stuff connects. It says, afterward, after patiently enduring the testing and temptation, you'll receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Right? If you feel like you're lacking or without, and it's getting hard, if you feel like you're in a, season of being humbled in the wilderness, lonely in the desert, circling the mountain. God, when am, this, when am I going to get out of this? If you feel like you're facing those trials and troubles of any kind, I think James would encourage you much like I would. Don't give up on God and don't give up on yourself. God's got something amazing for you. And I think he wants you to know how good he is. He also wants you to know how good he thinks you are and what he has in store for your life that, that he can do in you and through you, right? Stay true to your faith. Stay true to the call that God has in your life, right? And when you do, sometimes you're gonna see it through and you're gonna experience that promised land moment of, wow, I finally got out of this. I don't, I don't know where you're at. Some people walk for years in pain. Some people walk for years in sorrow. I don't, I don't know what everyone's story looks like, but I know that come eternity, God's really looking at, hey, how'd you live this life that I've given you? And there's a crown, a reward. And, and, and I love in heaven too, if you read further in the Bible and get to even like Revelation, just digging, digging into what, what are these rewards in heaven, these crowns you can read about. It's like, man, just something else that I would love to lay at God's feet when I get to worship him around the throne someday. Lord, thank you for, for just recognizing things that I've done in your name, but I want you to get all the glory. But for patiently enduring, there's an eternal reward for that, which is kind of cool to think about. That God, someday I'm going to get to be with you forever. And I just want to be able to honor you as much as possible in that moment, praise you and worship you in all your glory in that moment. Jump up to verse 13. Start there. It says, remember... When you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting thought. God is tempting me. God did this, right? God is testing me with this hard thing that I, you know, God's seeing whether or not I'm going to give in to this. He's put that there. He says, God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. I think, again, if the temptation comes from our own desires that entice us into something, the fact that you might have a desire, a thought, a temptation existing in your life, again, you're a normal human being. Those things are going to exist. You're going to face thoughts. You're going to face feelings. You're going to face desires that you may clearly know these are not from God or you may not even be aware that there's an ungodliness to that desire or that thought or that temptation. But I want you to know the existence of those things at first, that's a normal human thing. We're facing that in our life every day, every season that we're in. But it's the process of those desires 
becoming an action. And those actions becoming these sinful habits and behaviors that ultimately lead us in a place of spiritual death. Right Now, Jesus paid the price for our eternal death. He, he paid the price for us to have salvation in him. He paid the penalty, the price of our penalty of death for us when he was hung on the cross. But just letting those desires become action and habit are going to get us stuck in bondage and in, in this spiritual death in our lives now where we're going to succumb over and over again. That, that habitual sin will be there. And I think what James is saying here, too, is be careful of blaming God. Oh, God, this is your fault. God, you led me to this. You did this, right? I think there's a part where we have to recognize where those desires, where we gave into those desires, what took hold. And again, I think come back to what James said before. Ask God for help. I think the temptation here is to think that, well, if I'm not supposed to blame God, then I should just blame myself. And now I'm going to hold myself in contempt. And I'm going to, I deserve this. God's, well, God wants you to know, don't blame me, but I can help you, right? I'm here. I'm in this with you. We can do this together. I wonder what was so tempting. You know, James is writing this to the believers in the early church who are being persecuted. What kind of temptations might have, they have been facing, right? When, when they are being killed because of their faith, or where they were putting their lives on the line by just gathering together, right? If they were to sit in a room like this in the early church, they would have to overcome the fear of, of thinking that someone on the outside would be coming in to haul them away to jail or put them up in front of a, on the gallows somewhere, right? Like that's what they were risking to just come together. What kind of temptations might have they have been facing in that season? I know in America, it's pretty tempting without, without all that stuff to really challenge our faith. It's tempting to live in a wavering place where we get God and. God and everything I want. God and everything that I think I need for myself, And right? It's pretty easy when our faith isn't as outwardly challenged that way. What might they have been facing? And I wonder how easy it would have been for them to think this persecution is rough. Might just be easier to live like everybody else. Or, hey, when I'm in my secret meetings with my believer friends, I'm going to go after the Lord. But when I'm out there, I don't want anyone to kill me. So I'm just going to pretend like that's not me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull a Peter and I'm going to deny Christ in front of someone else because I don't want to die, right? I wonder, I wonder what temptations they had to kind of waver in their faith in those moments. Because maybe we might, maybe in America here, we might not have to worry about getting killed over our faith very often. Some, sometimes I'm sure it happens, right? But maybe we still deny the Lord in our own lives when walking out our faith and being honest about our faith with people might be uncomfortable. It might bring some sort of loss relationally, some sort of loss in, in our social realms in our world. I wonder what our temptations might be in times of trouble when, when maybe we put our jobs on the line for the sake of standing up for something that's right, right? If I stand up for this thing that I believe is right, I could lose my job over this. It might be pretty tempting to just keep your job, not speak up. What temptation there might be at the risk of losing a relationship or having that relationship broken by willing to be honest and live in integrity and show someone else what's really going on inside and to be able to speak the truth and love to one another versus just, no, I'm not going to 
go there. I'm just going to play it safe and easy because I don't want to, I don't want, I'm afraid of rejection. I'm afraid of loss. I wonder what temptations there might be when you're afraid of, or when you have an opportunity to be praised or to give someone else the credit and the glory, right? It might be pretty tempting to be like, yeah, I did that in that person's life. I made that happen for them versus the, the humble choice of saying, man, yeah, aren't they awesome? Aren't they, aren't they really good at what they do? Isn't, didn't, what, didn't God do something amazing in them? And how tempting it would, it, would it be to feel like I want to get the glory in some of this as well, right? Final part of our passage today, something I really want to focus on before we dismiss this morning. Starting in verse 16. It said, so don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. All this is what he said so far. He says, whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. That's pretty encouraging to hear in a time of trouble, isn't it? He's writing to people that are, that are afraid, that are going through it. And man, our God never, never changes, never casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. And we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. It's kind of an identity piece here. James is talking to believers. God's talking to us, right? I know you're going through it. I know it's hard. I know there's temptation. I know you can waver. I know that all these things we've been talking about, there's a lot going on. But you got to remember who you are. You are God's prized possession. He's amazing, and he loves you incredibly. Something that James wants his readers to know, I think, is the same thing God wants us to know here today, is that God is good. Even in the midst of all the pain going on, in the midst of difficult waiting and wondering and doubting, in the midst of suffering and temptation, in the midst of loneliness, in the midst of sorrow, despair, anger, whatever it is that you're facing in this world, confusion, right? Loss. God is good. Doesn't mean that you have to fake it and say, well, this is good because I, God's real and so I just have to be, this is a good thing. You know, like it could, you can acknowledge what you're going through. It's hard. It's painful. And then differentiate that God is still good even in the midst of these things or whatever you're going through. God is good and God loves you. Right? Again, I think it's really tempting to want to reject God because of what we're going through. Wouldn't that be an amazing tactic of the enemy to get us to reject the very one who has our answer, the very one who has the light at the end of our dark tunnel and he's, who's walking with us through it all? Wouldn't that be a great, a great ploy of the devil to get us to say no to the one who loves us, to the one who is good and the one who can, has overcome the world in the midst of it all? God loves you. You're his prized possession, James says. And he loves you unconditionally. Not because you are good, but because God is good. Right? Because of his goodness, he loves you. He's welcomed you into the family. He loves you so much. So just like James did, this unbelieving brother who had a miraculous turnaround, 
Just like James, when we encounter God's goodness, his love, the the awesome nature of who he is, it changes us and can give us courage in times of trouble. The Bible says the goodness of the Lord leads us to repentance. Oh man, that's not easy, is it, to repent? The goodness of the Lord can give us the courage and the strength to be humble and to repent and say, God, I need you. His goodness is incredible. And we can experience his goodness even in the midst of a toxic world that's trying to fill our heads and our hearts with so much other junk out there. What if, instead of trying to do better at being a good person, we began seeking the one who is good and already sees the best in us before we even do? (laughs) What if we truly let God transform us as we spent time with him? And I know we have a part to play in, in... being submitted to the Lord, surrendering, asking him, repenting, all this stuff. But what if, what if we made him our priority versus ourselves? Can you imagine what you could become if the God of this universe had his way in your life? If you let the fullness of his love pour into you, the, his goodness transform you? This week, I've got a couple challenges for you. A couple things that I think would be great to, to, just, to just do you might have done these things before, and if so, I'd say, great, just get a refresher. Let's do this. Let's, let's seek the Lord in this. First, try looking for God's goodness, <laughs> right? It's as simple as that. Keep your eyes peeled. Keep your mind open to the awareness of where is God today, even in the midst of hard situations. So when you wake up, God, can you show me your goodness today? And when you go to bed, God, what, what goodness did you show me today? Or when you're, when you're irritable or stressed or afraid or in the midst of something hard, take a time out and just set, set yourself aside with the Lord and say, God, can you remind me of your goodness in this moment? Can you remind me of the good things that you've done in my life today on this hard day? Because I believe that you are good and you're still here. Can you, can you also work this hard thing out for my good and show me? that this is going to become something good later. You're going to transform this as well. So look for God's goodness. The other thing, just start to search through God's word to see what he says, not only about his goodness, but about how much he loves you, right? Turn to the back of your Bible and look up those key words, like the goodness of God and his love. You can ask Google to help you on this one too. Bible verses about God's goodness. Bible verses about how much God loves me. And uh, there's tons of translations out there. Look it up to find the reference and then just get in your own Bible that you have where you can underline and highlight and just see what God says about who he is and who he says you are. I think sometimes we just have to be reminded of what God thinks about us, how he feels about us, of who God is according to his word. I think if we can just get our awareness back of, of God's goodness and how much he loves us, it can bring us back to that simple foundation that can transform us. Much of the way that James himself, the very brother of Jesus Christ, was transformed as he got to see the Lord at work in his own life. We're going to keep digging into the book of James over the next several weeks this summer, but uh, we'll keep reading further and jump back in to hear what James has to say straight up according to what God was inspiring in him. But I pray that you would be able to just take the simple words of this. I would even go back into this passage, James 1, verses 1 through 18, and just, just go back and re-ask the Lord for yourself as you read it on your own. Lord, what's standing out to me? What, if, what do you need me to hear out of this? And I pray that the Lord would meet you right where you're at. He would make his presence known in your life. He would remind you that he's with you and he's for you and he's ready to walk this out with you. And, and he would show you 
He would illuminate things for you that he's wanting you to understand and grow in, not so that you go out and do it on your own, but so you can walk with him in the midst of it all along the way.